Thank you. Well, it's me, and I made it. <laughs> Monday it was touch and go. Uh, my doctor uh, yesterday told me that I could come today, so I'm here with the, the approval of my physician, but he says I'm going to have to rest, so if I just nod off, you all know what's happening. <laughs> my name's Mayor Paul, and I'm an al who's happy, joyous, and free. And I'm so glad to be in a place where you can say the word big book without having to hide or catch a lot of flack for it, you know. Never did understand that. Uh, I want to talk about how I have learned through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should do it. Everybody I sponsor will. But I want to share with you my experience about how I made the big book mine. You know, I want it. This doesn't mean that I don't read and study and use Al-Anon, comfort the privilege, I most certainly do. But I found that the big book not only enhanced my Al-Anon program, but it changed my life. It um, it was where I learned about alcoholism. Now, I don't know about y'all, but uh, one year after I was in the program, my husband came down with cancer. And then I read everything I could get my hands on about that disease because... That was going to affect my life, too, whatever affected him like that. And I wanted to know everything there was to know about it. And then it hit me when I was talking to my sponsor one day. You know, I've lived in alcoholism for years and didn't know a thing about alcoholism. You know, I didn't think my husband was an alcoholic. I knew he was a drunk, but I didn't know he was an alcoholic. You know, he wasn't an under-the-bridge wino. God knows I kept him out from under the bridge. You know, that was not going to happen. And I thought that, you know, like a lot of people have preconceived ideas of what an alcoholic is supposed to look like or what the disease is supposed to be about, and I didn't have a clue. And I was hurt. I heard over and over and over and on that alcoholism is a family disease. Well, if alcoholism is a family disease, why wouldn't you study the textbook on alcoholism? Because obviously you have it too. You know, now I can remember the first time I read the big book and I thought, God, he needs to do this and this and this and this and this. And I think that's probably why some people are against, uh, especially, you know, without a little guidance, someone reading the book. But just like everything else, I mean, who, who among us did not go to an open AA meeting hearing something go, mm, 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 and give them the old elbow, you know. It's like, did you get that? Did you get that? And I know I remembered one of the first things that I saw in the big book that really turned me on where it says, sobriety is not enough. I'm like, that's it. You owe me more than just being sober. You owe me a lot, you know. And then I went on and I read a little further and I found out there were some things that I was going to have to do too. But I received my first big book on my birthday over 23 years ago. And uh, it was during this time that my sponsor's husband who some of y'all have met over the years as he's gone around with this other gentleman, and they have shared about the big book all over the world. And so I learned when in their living room, sitting there listening to him, uh, Joe and Charlie talk about the big book, back and forth, back and forth, and asking questions and reading and going back and back. And what I found was after a period of time, I read the book. I saw me on those pages instead of my husband. 
it finally had sunk in that this was not just for the alcoholic, but this was the family disease of alcoholism. And other than the allergy to alcohol, I don't see that there's very much difference in us. Because what do you get when you sober up an alcoholic? You get a scream at Al-Anon. <laughs> I mean, that's the deal. You know, their problems are going to be the same as our problems. They're going to have to learn to live life on life's terms without drinking. And I'm going to have to learn to live life on life's terms without using the alcoholic as an excuse for everything. Because, you know, anything that went wrong in my life was his fault. I was always lily white, pure, self-righteous, you know, arrogant, snug, self-righteous, and dominating, I think it says in our literature, you know. And that was true. That was true. But I didn't understand it. Now, my home group, we have a big book study every Monday night at 6.30. And it was done through the, the tradition on each one of us can do whatever we want to do, the autonomy. And so we've been having this big book study since not January of 1989. And I get real tickled because when we have uh, some people in the other fellowship will come and join us. And when they come in there, it scares them. It scares them to go into a group of people who know more about the book than they do. You know. But and also we tell them from the get-go that in this meeting, you don't share as an alcoholic. You share from the Al-Anon standpoint. And so we don't share. We don't talk about the alcoholic. We read from the book. And then we go, now, how do you relate to that? You know, what does that say to you? And, uh, and when they try to get off on drinking, we say, hey, no drinking in here. We don't relate about drinking. Let's do thinking. <laughs> you talk about drunk thinking, now we can go there. You know, we're the specialists in that. Uh, in our ODAT on July 21st, it says, there's no rules or regulation, no management control. Nobody says you must do this or you may not do that. That is government by principles. And that's what we do. So that what binds us together is a common problem. You know, if we hadn't had alcoholism in our lives, we wouldn't all be here tonight. And so what binds us together is the solution, the common solution. And a lot of our stuff in our Alan literature came straight out of the big book, word for word. And our welcome, although you may not like all of us, you'll come to love us in a very special way, the way we already love you. Talk with each other, reason things out. This is direct quotes from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you don't believe it, read it and you'll find it. I'm not going to tell you where either. <laughs> now, to me, the people that I've met who are really against us doing this, haven't studied it themselves or haven't done it from the standpoint of how do I relate to the book. How do I? And, uh, and I love it. The book even addresses this. It says there's a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. And that principle is content prior to investigation. You know, that's one of my favorite sayings from the book. I have people I sponsor like this. I had this one little girl in Canada. And, you know, that, that's pretty remote out in Ontario. She lives out, not like y'all, in the boonies, you know. So, I, you know, I mean, not knocking Amarillo, but, you know, y'all are way out here. And coming in, you know, I'm thinking, what hell's out here? You know, I'm looking and I'm looking in the plane and then I see, oh, well, there's a nightclub. There's somebody's joint. I saw that coming in. And then I found another so-and-so's place and I said, they got drunks in this town. I can tell that. And if there's drunks in this town, there's crazies to match, and that's us. But this little old girl, she's up there in Canada, and so she eats three or four things. 
And I tell her, I said, Bonnie, why don't you try something different? And she said, well, I don't like it. I said, have you ever tried it? She said, no. I said, how do you know? I said, if you've never had anything but English peas, how the hell do you know you don't like green beans? <laughs> I told that to a girl that I sponsored who didn't know how that was going to be life after her one and only love of life, too, you know. There's lots of others out there to try, you know. But that's contempt prior to investigation when you know you don't like something even though you've never done it. You know, now I've gotten into a lot of trouble because, you know, my drug of choice is adrenaline. That's what I learned in the book. And uh, I'm an excitement junkie. And so I'll do anything. You know, anybody says, you want to do this, you want to do that. Oh, hell yeah, I've never done that before. Now, I have got a little bit of sanity. In step two, I haven't done bungee jumping yet. But there may come a day when I'll go right over the edge. Who knows? Now, there's uh, learning how to live life on life's terms is what the book is all about. And I found myself on the pages of that book. And a lot of my friends in AA tell me that I'm just one six-pack short of being an alcoholic. But that's not true because beer's not my drug of choice. You know, I like vodka. Now... <laughs> You know, why bother with beer? Um, with the, just like with the, they talk about the book, A Real Alcoholic. Well, with a real Al-Anon, the drug doesn't do for us what it does for other people. See, that's what makes an alcoholic. Alcohol does something different for an alcoholic. Guess what? Alcoholics do something different for me. It's the person who drinks it is what does something for me. Because that's exciting. Have you ever noticed so much excitement around alcoholics? You never, I mean, even though it's crazy and it's mad, you know, I can remember one time uh, I was over at the vice president's house. We were at a meeting. Not the vice president of my company. <laughs> Don't even go there. Uh, <laughs> I think vice says it all. Anyway, now. <laughs> and we were all enjoying ourselves, I thought, and then I missed him. You know how that happens when you're at a party and there's alcohol and you miss them? And then I heard this strange little muted sound, and I look around, and he's inside the fireplace. <laughs> he's got his head up the chimney, and he's saying, there's all sorts of little spiders and things in here. And it's like, oh, God. But, you know, I wouldn't trade those times for anything. Because that's when you have to be real creative, you know. That really gets your juices flowing, you know. you got to get them out of the fireplace where it doesn't look bad. <laughs> so, they say in the book for alcoholics that when it comes to alcohol, they are strangely insane. What they have makes them strangely insane when it comes to alcoholics. I am strangely insane because I do really crazy things. You know, we're at the Christmas party. It's getting that time of the year. We're at the Christmas party at the country club. And, um, of course, you know, I was okay when he was uh, making um, lewd comments. I was okay when he was crawling around on the floor on the table. I was not okay when he was puking on a bush out in front of the country club. <laughs> I mean, I was not okay. Now, everybody there might have missed that, <laughs> except for the announcement. <laughs> I can't believe you had a puking on a bush. <laughs> now, you know, a sane person would have gone on, got in the car, and left. Instead of out there announcing for the entire of the country club parking lot that so-and-so is puking on a bush. 
So alcoholism is a family disease, and I've been affected. You can tell I am affected. And we adapted the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous for our recovery. We changed only one word. In step 12 where it says alcoholics, we say others. That's all. One little word all we changed. So we are affected by the same illness. And as far as like, say, I'm concerned, I have the uh, addictive personality. I'm obsessive compulsive. Is there ever too much of a good thing? I mean, really. You know, if it feels good, do it till you die on the spot, for God's sake. Don't stop when you're tired, you know. Wait till you can't function, you know, and they drag you out, you know. I love that. And I love the excitement in that. I love the tension. God knows you get attention when you're around or drunk. And I love being needed. That's some of the things that calls me from the disease of alcoholism. You know, he needed alcohol. I needed him to need me. There's a challenge there. Always been one up for the challenge. Don't tell me I can't do something. My mama made that mistake lots. Got in a lot of trouble. All her fault. If she hadn't have said don't do that, I wouldn't have had to do it. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have had to do a lot of that. I remember one time I, uh, mama, we lived uh, by the Arkansas River. And uh, mama said don't go out and play on the sandbar down at the river. Well, you know, there's little pockets of water around the sandbar that are very, very deep, and it, there's a tremendous current, and they won't let you swim in the river because people drown all the time. But, you know, when you're a child and you're crazy, you're bulletproof, you know. And I hadn't even thought about going down to the sandbar. But once Mother suggested that, I could hear it calling to me, you know. Mary Pearl, Mary Pearl. And so I got with a bunch of the boys in the neighborhood, and we went down to the sandbar. It was wonderful down there. I mean, they had these little trees. We called them saplings. And you could pull them, get two or three kids, pull a tree over, and you get in the top of it, and they let it go. And you just slingshot. I mean, it's like almost like Peter Pan for about three seconds. You don't fly long, and there's always a crash landing, but damn, it's fun. And I broke my leg. And I told them, I can't have a broke leg. Not on the sandbar. So they drugged my body. Now this was very painful. It just shows you the length that I'm willing to go in pain. I'm 14 years old, and I'm willing to suffer all this pain. The physical pain of being drugged a quarter of a mile and put under a tree. And then they went and told Mom I fell out of the tree. Because see, it's acceptable to fall out of the tree in your backyard. Not on the sandbar. Yeah. So, it just shows you, you know, there's a, there's a little insanity running in here. Uh, okay. And I also have this need to manage and control my environment. I need everything around me to be in its place and everything to have a place. And I need all these little things going the way I want them to go so that I don't have to deal with my fears. I don't have to deal with my feelings when I can control the environment around me. Well, we all know we're powerless, so you can see I'm going to have problems right off, you know, because I'm not going to be able to do that. But I never knew these were things that were wrong with me. I didn't have a clue there was anything wrong with the way I thought, the way I acted. Well, later on, I mean, you get thrown in jail. That's a pretty good indicator something's going wrong. But, but I'm saying for the most part it was always, it was such a good plan. 
You know, we make plans and God gets hysterical. You know, he's going, oh, they're planning again. <laughs> you know. But see, that's where the alcohol, we find, is only a symptom of the disease for the alcoholic. See, I thought if alcohol were removed from my husband, then I would be okay. Now, today that doesn't make any more sense than I have a headache. Would you take my aspirin? But that was how I lived. And I mean, I lived for years thinking if he had quit drinking, then I would be okay because I did lots of crazy things. All he did was drink. See, he's pretty much a quiet little individual just over there drinking himself into oblivion. And I could not allow that to happen because if I allowed that to happen, he would get out of control. In other words, he wasn't doing what I told him to do. And I had to stop that. I had to manage that. And I did a lot of things trying to manage the, the disease of alcoholism. <clears throat> Lots of little crazy things. But the book that tells us that we have to have, if we're going to get past this, if we're going to get out of the disease, we're going to have to have a complete an entire psychic change. Now, how does that come about? And why do you even need it? See, I didn't need it. He was the one that needed to change. Well, he changed. Guess what? It didn't help me. Now, that's not to say that our home life, I mean, we didn't have to worry about, you know, the hit and run episodes. We didn't have to worry about the, the sheriff or the attorney general people knocking on the front door so much anymore. But the feelings that I had on the inside, the fears, the frustration, the rage that I had on the inside, it did not help for him to get sober. So I was going to have to have some help too. And the book tells us that there's very little hope for doing things differently without a psychic change. You just can't do it without that change. And I was going to need more than human power. And that's what the book gives us. It tells us that that, you know, our life's out of control. Our life's unmanageable, you know. And no human power can do this for us. And that's my power, your power, no human power. But God could and would if he were sought. And I didn't like God. That was one of the things I had a lot of problems with when I first came into Al-Anon. I did not want to say the Lord's Prayer. I did not want to talk about God. I didn't like God. God didn't like me. He leave me alone. I'll leave him alone. That was sort of how it was. Now, I don't know if everybody felt like, obviously, we all come from a different place in that. But my deal was I had been raised in church, and I went to Sunday school, and I believed all the things that they told me, and then I watched my daddy die. Forty-six years ago yesterday, I watched my daddy die of a heart attack. And I knew that if God loved me, really loved me, like in the little song we always sing, Jesus loves me. Well, he didn't love me because he took the one person in the world that I could depend on, that I knew loved me, that I knew cared about me. I knew my mother did not like me, much less loved me. It was pretty obvious. You know? And to me it was as a child because I could not get my mother's approval and approval meant love to me as a child. And so when I couldn't get approval, I did everything I could then to get disapproval because I'll get attention whether I get approval or not. And so I turned my back on any type of spiritual belief or training at the age of 12. 
And then as I went along my life, it's not that I didn't believe there was God. I just believed that I was one of those that God says she ain't going to make it. And so I'm not going to make it anyway, so I might as well do whatever the hell I want to now. And that was my attitude about it. And I just didn't. And every time something really bad I thought happened to me, I knew it was God getting me. See, it just proved that bad opinion I had of myself. Now, the book says that each person has to make their own diagnosis as to whether they're an alcoholic or an alanine. You know, that's the reason we even tell people when they come to our meetings, come at least six times for you to decide whether you believe that you want to do this. See, it's really a self-diagnosis thing. And the common symptoms, you know, is that we need to control our environment. And that's because most of us live in self-centered fear. Self-centered fear. Uh, trying to keep it all together. Straighten up. What are people going to think? You know, that self-centered fear. What are people going to think about me when they see you out there puking on the bush? Forget about what people think when they hear me screaming. Because I'm not focusing on me. I'm focusing on you, you know. There was, uh, my sister did not understand the disease of alcoholism either. And the, the irony to this is, our grandfather died with wet brain from alcoholism. Grandma died of cirrhosis of the liver from alcoholism. My favorite uncle was shot in bed with another man's wife. He was drunk at the time. <laughs> Loved him. And, uh, and I had two aunts that were practicing. My mother was the only one in her family that did not drink. And she said she carried the bad seed. She was terrified of alcoholism because her father had physically, emotionally, and sexually abused her. And so she knew all these horror things about alcoholism, you know. So it wasn't that we didn't know about alcoholism, but you don't recognize it, you know. You just don't. And, and like I say, I had to keep this big image up that I'm okay. I've got to be okay regardless. Well, I, my sister, like I say, didn't understand alcoholism. And, so she bought J.D. a wine-making kit for Christmas one year. Now, up to this point, we have a bourbon-drinking man, you know. And now he's going to be the little wine-maker. And I read the directions. You know how we are? We get in there and we read the information. we got to check it all out, you know. They might not be intelligent enough to know how to do this. Well, you got to be in control. I mean, if you're going to have wine, by God, I'm going to be the winemaker. And one of the things I noticed was it had to sit for a year before you drink it. And I got hysterical. <laughs> 24 bottles of wine are going to sit in this house for a year. <laughs> it's still funny to think about it. So anyway, oh, yeah, he was going to do that. No big deal. Well... This girl I worked with was pregnant. We were going to give her a baby shower, and all the guys were going to be over at her husband, over at their house with her husband. And so we lived in one town, and the shower was taking place in another. And when I got in that evening from work, I went tearing in and went changing clothes and getting ready to go. And J.D. was sitting there and had a big, you know how we have big iced tea glasses? I love it in the South. You know, when you go to a meal, you don't get those little dinky glasses. You know, up north they're real bad about that. you got to ask for six of them, you know. But here we get a decent size of glass. I tell you, well, he had this glass, and I looked over and I said, what's in the glass? He said, Kool-Aid. He said, great Kool-Aid. I said, oh. Well, we get in there and get ready to go, and he said, honey, why don't you drive? I'm tired. And I said, okay. So I'm driving along, and all of a sudden, J.D. just sort of went down out of the seat and into the floorboard of the truck. And I said, what the hell's the matter with you? And he said, I don't know. Now, I had never seen anyone struck drunk before. I 
Billy. He was fine one minute, next minute he's not. And I said, you're drunk. And he goes, yeah. And I said, where did you get it? And he said, it was the grape juice. I said, grape Kool-Aid? He said, no, it's a ball of that wine. That's about maybe two months old. Well, I didn't know how crazy that stuff was going to make him. You know? And he just laying there, and I didn't know how crazy it was going to make me either. And so I told him, I said, straighten up. Now, he is liquid. And he's going. And I'm going, this is not acceptable. Don't you embarrass me. I work with these people. And he said, I'll try. So he got himself up in the seat, he opened the door, he got out and did a triple flip right into a cactus garden. Well, he's wallowing around there in the cactus, screaming and hollering, we go out. Well, I get my girlfriend and we go over to this other place and I'm going, oh my God, oh my God, and left him with the men. I'm thinking, they can take care of him, you know, they, they can pick all those little things out, whatever needs to happen. And when I got back, they were all just looking at me. And he was sitting there, and they were playing cards. Now, half of his cards were facing the wrong way. Now, these are serious poker-playing people. And I said to them, I said, what happened? They said, he is so drunk. And I said, still? I mean, you know, I couldn't understand why it was taking so long. That that green wine was bad. And so they said, well, what do you need? And what do, what do earth people think people need? You need coffee or food. So they took him. They were afraid to leave him there. I was getting a little testy. And they took him, and off they went to go to McDonald's. And they were gone for several hours because they lost him. This is before the days of the drive-in, and so they had gone in and left him in the car, and they came back, and he was gone. And they knew they could not come back without him. And some kids had him in the back of the car, drove off, took him, showed him, I don't know what happened there. And then they finally brought him back like, to the scene of the accident, you know, and, and so they brought him home. Now, his solution to this little episode was, We'll never go back there again. I said, really? But I was a crazed person. You know, I was the crazed person, you know. And I had to look honestly at me. What was my part in that whole deal? You know, I should not have taken him with me. When when he went down in the seat, I should have made a U-turn, been late going to the But see, that never occurred to me. Good, logical thinking did not occur to me because my thinking was very, very sick. He had to be with me. It was very important for us to present a couple, but he had to be okay. And I would give him all this. And, and, and one, another year we were going back to the country club. I said, I just never learned. I kept going back, you know, doing the same thing, expecting something different all the time. And, I mean, and he was drunk before we left the house. And I said to him, I was just, you know, you know, just chewing him out all the way there, and I rear-ended a car. 
because I was telling him. And because there was so much alcohol on him, I had to take the sobriety filter. <laughs> and we were only a few blocks from the country club, and all my friends are turning on seeing me out there. You know, I had to identify here. And I saw the progression of my own disease from the time I was a little girl and the defects of character that I had as a child and what had happened to me again. And I began to realize for all my life, I mean, I'm a smart lady, you know. I have a wonderful IQ. Doesn't show, you know. And you say to yourself, you know, what's a girl like you doing in a place like this? I said that, you know, I've, I've been in places I wouldn't be caught dead in. I'm telling you, I have gone into places, I mean, with like motorcycle gangs and stuff like that, you know, and I mean, got in there and, and come out, you know, and you, you thought, I mean, it's just bad. And it's like, I, I wasn't raised to be like this. What has happened here? What is happening here, you know? That self-knowledge wasn't much help to me. Because I knew a lot of things, but I couldn't seem not to do it. It's like, if he gets drunk, I'm going to be crazy. Now, I know that. And it's like when he would come home, there was a lot of violence in our home. Not from him, from me. Because, you see, my little boy had gone out and done what I told him not to, so he got to whip his ass when he comes home. It's just so simple. And I hated how I felt about me when I do things like that. And I'd say, I'm not going to fight. I don't care what he says. I'm not going to fight. And he'd come home. And the door would open. My mouth would, too, you know. And then he'd look over at me, and I'd say, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to fight. I know this doesn't work, I'm not going to fight. He'd say, hey, bitch, what's happening? <laughs> I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to fight. Hey, that woman. Oh. See, we know what to do. You know, and then I'd be just, yeah! And I'd spring on him, you know, and then pulverize him. You know, don't, uh, call me a bitch. Okay, I know that. Don't call me fat. That hurts my feelings. Why? I'm fat. That's why. Don't you hate it when people call it like it is? Blah! You know. That's the progression, you know. And thinking every time, this time it's going to be different. But nothing's different till somebody's different. And there wasn't anything different. I couldn't control my thinking. I couldn't control my mouth. I couldn't control my actions, my reactions. Uh, I mean, years and years, even before the, that, uh, I mean, like the very first job I was on, I smarted off one day to the president of the company. Didn't seem like a big deal. I was on my lunch hour. I mean, my free time, you know, I was sitting there talking to the switchboard operator, and he said, don't you have something to do? And I said, not on my lunch hour. Well, that cost me my job. Not that day, not that week, but that smart aleck comment cost me that job down the line. Because, you see, I was a smart aleck. I was, and I call myself quick wit. <laughs> Isn't that funny how you put such a good label on a bad action, you know, so that you, because I couldn't be wrong. When I got a down on the very first speaker that I ever heard was a lady from Oklahoma. Her name was Ramona. A lot of y'all may have been blessed enough to know her. And she talked about giving me her God. That's what she'd say. She'd say, I give you my God. 
But if I did, then I'd take away the joy you find in your own. And I'd say, that's okay. Because <laughs> I've always wanted the easier, softer way. I want to do it quick, fast. You know, do something even if it's wrong. I didn't have a clue how to find my higher power. And I've been so closed-minded about all that God stuff all my years. And I just knew if God loved me, he wouldn't have taken Daddy away. Now, I didn't quit going to church because Mama made me. <laughs> it was real funny. I, uh, I've always been a night person up until this year. And um, we lived next to a railroad track. We always laughed about we lived on the right side of the track. The train still knocks the, the buildings apart, no matter which side you live on. And um, Mama would come in and she'd say, get up, it's time to get up, it's time to get ready. And I'd say, okay, okay, and then I'd just lay there. Now, I'd done this from the time I was in the first grade school. I'm the kind that, you know, she'd just throw me out of the bed, drag me down. I never ate breakfast, and who could have time? I'd rather sleep because I don't want to be up in the morning. And so this Sunday, Mama telling me, get out of bed, get out of bed. She said, God's going to get you one of these days. God's going to get you. And so I'm laying there in bed, and all of a sudden I hear this, and I look up, and all these little cracks are forming over my head. See, we had real plaster. And I jumped up out of bed, ran in the hall, and the ceiling of my room fell in. I said, okay, I'm going, I'm going. <laughs> you know. I heard things there, though, that say, you're guilty if you think it, much less do it. Oh, well. You know, I knew I was a goner, so I just said to heck with it, you know. So a couple of times during the active drinking, J.D. would be the one that would say, why don't we go to church? Maybe that'll help me and I won't have to drink. And I'd do anything for him, so I'd go with him to church. And I had some bad experiences there. Uh, the first church that uh, the sweet little Baptist ladies, God love them, uh, they couldn't help being who they were. I couldn't help being who I was. And J.D. and I had been living together. And this, uh, they came by the house one day, and little did they know, we'd been married now for two months. And they came by the house, of, and they told me they didn't need me there in their church anymore because they didn't need sinners in their church. So, see, I took that as a personal rejection, not from the little Baptist lady. I took that as a rejection from God. God didn't want me. And so then about six, seven years later, J.D.'s making another approach to this time he's going to a Methodist church, and he wants me to go. And so I go to the church with him that morning, and I have on a gabardine pantsuit, jacket, blouse, slacks, hose, heels, and they told me I couldn't come in. You can't wear pants to church on Sunday morning. Now, you can come Sunday night. And I said, well, who's the God that comes in on Sunday night? <laughs> so there's that smart mouth again, you know. And it's like they embarrass me, so what do I do? My mouth comes out, you know. And it embarrassed me. So I said, I'm just never going to go back. So one more time, I took it as a rejection from God, not from the little old ladies there at the church. And the old, eyes have to be, the old ideas have to be defeated. You have to get rid of an old idea before you can have a new idea. And I found out you don't have to like something to accept it. Once you accept it, it loses its power over you. And this continues to be a process. Like, if you think that I stand before you today a shadow of my former self because I got up one morning and said, gee, I think I'll lose 100 pounds. That was not the case. That was not the case. A year ago yesterday, 45 years to the day Daddy died, my sister died in my car with me. And I rushed her to the hospital, and um, I had had her to the doctor that morning, 
And uh, as I was coming back, I had gone to the drugstore to get her a prescription. And when I came out, she choked a couple of times and then her chest quit moving. And it was in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic in front of the biggest mall we have in Arkansas. And uh, I got her to the hospital, but she went without oxygen for 12 minutes. And they were able to revive Dorothy, but Dorothy is no longer with me. My sister, as I knew her, will never be the same. And the doctor told me I started shaking, and I couldn't quit shaking for days. And he said, I think you need to be seen. And they found out I have a heart condition. So here was I in one hospital having a heart catheterization, and here's Dorothy in another one, and I see you, and J.D.'s going back and forth between the two. Because, you see, that's all the natural family I have is my sister and she, me. So, anyway, I found out that you can follow the doctor's orders and do what he tells you to do in order to get the results you want. And that's what I learned in the book. You don't have to like it to accept it. You don't. Have, you just, by God, do it. And so I did exactly what they told me to do. He told me I was borderline diabetic, and my sister's being diabetic was what put her in the condition she was in. She had kidney failure. So when the doctor told me I have a kidney infection this weekend, that got my attention, y'all. <laughs> but anyway, um, I went ahead and I did exactly what he said to do, and as a result, two weeks ago my doctor released me, the heart doctor, and said that I'm fine, I'm released for a year. I'm no longer a borderline diabetic. All of that has self-corrected itself. And I've been on high blood pressure medication since I was 30, and I'll no longer have high blood pressure. If anything, it's low. Can you believe it? So you see, I get the benefits because why? Did I want to do it? No. Did I like doing it? No. Did I enjoy telling myself? No, no. Did I cheat? No. And that was the discipline that I learned from working the program. That was the discipline. That's acceptance. You have to accept the reality. And I had to accept the reality of the situation I was in and then do what I was told to do. And that's what the book is about. Accept the reality of alcoholism in your life. Acceptance comes hard for me. I don't know about y'all, but it has to get my attention. For so I, you know, I fight stuff and not realizing I'm fighting stuff. I don't know if y'all do this or not. Uh, I had my, my best example of this in a long time is um, I don't like cats. I just start off with that. You know, I don't like cats. Uh, my sister had a cat one time that jumped on me. I had to have 16 stitches. I don't trust cats. Don't like cats. They're sneaky little varmints, you know. <laughs> Dog at least will bark, you know, before he attacks. But a cat just gets you. And uh, I planted this beautiful flower bed. I walked on it. You know how we are. We never do anything a little bit. And so I went out there and I planned this flower bed that goes across the whole front of my house. And it's a free-form flower bed. And I um, went to the quarry and I got my rocks, one at a time, picking them out. So they all be the same size. I got these New Mexico White River rocks. And I got all these wonderful rocks. And I lined them up in this little free-form out there across the quarry because I had made me a template so I'd know exactly where I'd have one rock too many and not one rock too few. And so I've got all my rocks lined up. took an entire day. Not that I'm a perfectionist or anything. <laughs> Went back home and I put those in. I put big elephant ears across the front of the house. And then around this border, I put hostas. A variegated hosta, a plane. A variegated a plane, you know. Now they're all perfect. And in between, there's 15 foot. Impatience. 17 flats of impatience. <laughs> Never do anything a little bit, you know. 
And guess what? Now, you're going to let them grow. And they get out there and they start coming up. Well, you water them. Now, the instructions on the little thing of miracle Grow. I got miracle Grow because you know those commercials where you see the guy say, I got a 50-pound tomato here. Here's miracle Grow. I thought, miracle Grow is what I mean. <laughs> so, it says once a month to water with miracle Grow. Well, if once a month is good, once a week is better. People are driving by and going, my God, did you ever see impatience like those? They're four foot tall. It's this little rainbow blanket. I mean, it's, it's really impressive. I mean, it was gorgeous. You know, people taking pictures, you know, and all this. I'm just, this is my flowers. I'm waiting for the Miracle Grow people to come so I can do my endorsements, you know. <laughs> come home one day and there's a big hole in the middle of my impatience. What happened? What happened here? Because, do you realize it's screwed up now? Because there's no way you can plant more impatience. They'll never be the same. I mean, it's just, it's, perfection is ruined. Just ruined. And so I'm hysterical out there trying to figure it out. J.D. finally one morning, he says, come here, I found what it is. I said, what is it? Because every day, more impatience are coming down. I said, is it gophers? What is it? What is it? They're being broken off at the top of the ground. It's cats. This one big calico cat. She's using those impatience to lurk so she can attack the squirrels and the birds. Now, I'm going to change the nature of the cat. <laughs> I don't put it in my mind like that, but I'm going to stop the cat from eating the birds and squirrels and using my flower bed. The flower bed's already ruined. Forget that. But I'm going to get the cat out of her. So I begin to canvass people what to do to get rid of a cat. They say, moth moth. Cats don't like mothballs. So I get two or three boxes of mothballs, and I put them all over the yard. You can smell our house from two blocks away. (laughs) Doesn't bother the cat. (laughs) Somebody said, well, cayenne pepper. So I go to Sam's, and I get me two of those big gallons of of the the ground-up cayenne pepper, like you put on pizzas and stuff, and I go out there, and I put it all over the ground. The cat will walk on it. He'll lick it. It'll be too hot. He won't like it. The Mexican cat. What can I tell you? He loves the damn pepper. I don't understand, you know. I moved the bird feeder. You know, I'm doing everything I can out there. And then finally I said, okay, that's it. I can't handle it. I've got a air rifle, a little crossman, pellet gun type thing. So I declared war. And so I would watch out the front window, and I'd see the cat, and then I'd lurk out on the porch, and I'd pump up my gun, pump it up about three times, beat it in, and pour a hole, and the cat goes, get out! But the cat came back. So I pumped it up six times, and I beat in on the cat and shoot him again in the butt, and he goes, get out! But he comes back. I have an cat now. He's doing the same thing, expecting something different. So now I'm mad. I pumped that gun up to ten. And I am working now. And so every time I go out, the cat's doing like this, and I'm doing like this. And I see him out there, and so I take a beat on him, and I shot. And just as I shot, he jumped over the fence, and I knocked a hole in the neighbor's house. Not good. 
So spring the next year comes around, and I'm back buying impatience. I'm going to do the same thing, expecting something different. And sure enough, I watered it with miracle Girl, got it all pretty, and guess what? The cat came back. The cat came back. And I am just hysterical. I'm out there, and I have, I have uh, asked all these things. I've gone to the pet stores. I've got all this cat repellent. I've done everything, and he says, so finally, I decide he has to die. I have a 38. So what I do is I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about it, and I wrote this friend of mine on the, email, on the Internet and was telling him about what I was going to do, and he said, let me share a little experience with you. He said, I have these golden retriever show dogs, in the, and he lives out in the country, and he said, the guy lives down from him. This little dog kept coming up trying to service his dogs. And he said he told him about it, and he said, well, it's a stray dog. Hangs around my place, but it's not really our pet. So feel free to kill it if you want to. So one morning he said he shot the dog, but he didn't kill him on the first shot. He went through his spine, and he said, I'll never forget that scream to my dying day, and then having to go out there and finish him off. Thanks for sharing. What if I don't kill the cat on the first block? You know. I'm sitting there now. I've been talking to my sponsor for two years about the cat, and she just laughs. And I'm calling her that day, and I'm telling her about it, and she said, when are you going to catch on? Boy, I hate it when they do that, you know. Like, what have I missed? What have I missed? Because, see, I was so into the obsession with the cat. I'm going to manage and control the environment here. I'm going to teach a cat how not to be a cat. A cat's a predator. That's what they do. I'm trying to change the nature of the cat. Oh, I guess I have to accept the cat. I mean, give me arsenic. It's easier. You know. And so I say to myself, okay, if I have to accept the cat, I'll accept the cat. I'll accept the cat. I'll accept the cat. So I walk down on the porch and the cat's like this and I scream, Welcome to my yard, FC! You can be my yard cat. Eat the birds, eat the squirrels, who gives a damn? Welcome! Make my home your home. And I turn around and went back in the house and I said, I'm going to puke. And J.D. is just dying laughing. He said, that is hysterical. And I said, well... I've been taught that you need to accept it to the point you wouldn't change it if you could. So I'm taking the action. I don't want to do it, but I'm taking the action. I give up. I'm throwing in the towel. I'll accept the cat. Next morning I get up. I'm doing my readings, my meditation. I happen to look out the front window. One of my squirrels is eating a limb off of my Japanese bonsai. You know, they have very few little limbs. And I mean... Oh, my God! I went tearing out the door, screaming down the street, going, where the hell's my cat? Where is my cat? When you need the cat, where the hell is he? Eat this squirrel! Eat this squirrel! Bad squirrel! And I'm standing there, and I'm stomping at him, and I'm telling him, get away, get away from my tree. And I'm looking around, and this guy is driving by going... And I'm thinking, what is your problem? And I happen to look down, and I'm out there in my underwear. (laughs) 
Now, I don't know where the cat is. Stay, I've never seen it since. <laughs> and my sponsor says that's God's way of saying, once you accept it, it can go away. You know. What's up? But then, I, I couldn't let it go. I drove around for weeks looking for my cat. <laughs> I was afraid something had happened to the cat. Well, after all, he was my cat down here. <laughs> In the book, it told me three things. It defined my problem. What's my problem? I'm powerless over people, places, and things, especially an alcoholic. It defines the solution. I don't have the power to manage my own life. I don't have the power. But God can and will if I seek his guidance. And it taught me how to bring about the solution by living spiritual principles and trusting in a power greater than myself and by working the 12-step method of recovery outlined in the book. And recovery begins when I'm willing to make a commitment and I did that by getting a sponsor and doing the things I was told to do in the meetings. And most importantly, when I talk with another Al-Anon, when I hear that, by sharing experience, strength, and hope with one another. That, to me, is what it's all about. I've learned this program is not for people who need it, but people who want it, you know. So many times, you know, new people come into the meeting, and we want it so bad for them, you know. But they've got to want it, you know. And the book told me that I had a disease. Now, the word disease is D-I-S. E-A-S-E. I am at not at ease with something. That's what disease is about. You're not at ease. And it's a condition that separates people. And a family disease does that. The disease of alcoholism separates people. It goes, like it says in the book, like a tornado roaring through people's lives. And it's not just the alcoholic, but it's the Alan on street. If you don't believe it, sponsor Alatine sometime. And those kids will tell you, you know, they understand the alcoholic sick, but what the hell was wrong with the non-drinker? What's wrong with that one? That one was the one that was giving them all the grief. It wasn't the one that was drinking. It was that other one, you know. Uh, I began to see that when I substituted the word thinking for drinking, how my thinking had been bad all my life. And I had alcoholic traits or that personality. I love it when people say, the alcoholic personality, what is that? It's a sick personality. That's what it is. It's the disease. It is sick, you know. Uh, and that obsession, you know. I, I, it described my condition as best of anything I've ever known. You know, I'd get angry and then I'd have to get even. That was my deal. I got angry at my landlady in Newfoundland. I, I got really restless. I had a little dinky apartment in Newfoundland. And you can't imagine how confined it is to be in three rooms when you've got 290 inches of snow during the course of a year. And... And in your bathroom, I think she used leftover paint. My bathroom was black, and it was four by four, and it had no window. And you could sit on the john with your feet in the shower and your hand in the sink. I mean, it was that close in there, you know. And I said, I wanted a window. I needed, I felt so claustrophobic in there, I needed a window. I went to base housing, and they approved that I should have a window. And they told her in order to continue to rent that house, I was going to have to have a window. And she agreed to put in the window, but the window did not appear on my time frame. And I waited, my God, two weeks, I know. From the time, from the time they told her to put in the window, and then one day I just lost it and decided I'll put in the window. You start with a hatchet. And when you hack the wall away, being how this is an apartment and she lives in the one next to you, she felt a little the vibration. And so I got a window that day, you know. I mean? But, I mean, see, that's the craziness. 
And so, therefore, I then, for the, for the next three years, I'm going to have a war with the landlady because she's thinking, there's a crazy American there. You know why? There was a crazy American there. You know, I gave that woman lots and lots of grief. You know, she told me, she told my husband, she says, I don't even want to talk to her. She says, you bring me the rent check. No, no, no. Now, we don't have door-to-door delivery for mail. I go to the base to get mine at the, the, the APO box. But what does she have to do, my landlady? She has to walk because she doesn't have a car. She has to walk in that snow three miles across town to get her mail. I'll mail it to the heifer. That's what I did. I could have walked out my door and handed it. She, I mean, we, we had, there were three apartments to each building. They were all military barracks is what they had been at one time, and they had bought them. But she was in the middle, and I was on one end. I could have handed her that check, but what she did, hurt my feelings, and she said she didn't want it, so make her walk for it. That was my deal, you know, make her pay. Always don't let anybody get you. Get them one better, you know, one-upmanship. And that's just like I, I went and joined the wives club, the NCO wives club. Now, I don't know, how many of you have ever joined a women's club? Oh, they are grim. I mean, grim. And especially when here we are overseas, but it was my uh, effort to try and mix with the other wives. I knew I didn't mix well with people. I'm either in charge or I don't go, so I don't mix well, you know. And so I'm going to go and just be a member. And we would sit there, and of course all these people had children. And I had found out the year before that I was sterile and I wasn't going to have children. And I was, I didn't deal with those feelings. What feeling? I had a great feeling of loss and I, and I felt very inadequate as a woman. I had a lot of bad feelings about that, but I just didn't, I honor those feelings. And so what I determined was, I didn't like you that had kids, because look at your kids, you know. And today that could be a really good excuse for birth control. I've seen a lot of kids that would make poster children for birth control, but, you know, but it wasn't so bad back in the early 60s like that. And so here I was, and I went to the club, and I don't think people pay attention when they talk about their kids at what other people say. All they want to do is tell you about theirs, because they begin to, everybody was sharing about their kids. Well, I had a dog at home, and so I began to talk about Chris like he was a person. And uh, they would say, you know, I've had so much trouble with this kid, and he's just now beginning, I said, I cannot remember when he didn't walk. And they go, oh, and, and just go right on with a thing like that. And then one of them says, well, when I discipline myself, I just lock him in a closet. And, oh, you know, and I mean, they, they, they went on like this for weeks. And then finally, I was in some kind of, we were getting some kind of deal together. And a girl came over to the house and she said, well, where's your son? And I said, they're on the couch. She said, it's a dog. That's a gift. She said, I thought it was your child. I said, I never said it was. You just assumed. You know, and what I did, I embarrassed them, and so they threw me out of the club. Um, <laughs> but you see, that kind of a deal, see, that little gamey stuff, you know. Okay. The solution for an alcoholic is he has to drink, or he goes insane, or he dies, or he goes to abstinence. I mean, there, that's it. You're in abstinence, insanity, or death. Well, for us, we have those three propositions. All ours is acceptance, insanity, or death. We have to accept life on life's terms. And, uh, and the allergy to the alcohol, and remember, an allergy is an abnormal reaction to something. 
Well, don't we act a little abnormal sometimes? Don't we react a little, you know? And um, I'm crazy. I have lots of allergies. I always have all my life. But I have created some for myself. And I didn't know you could do that. That's like an alcoholic. You know, some of them say they're alcoholics on the first drink. Others say I drank for a long time and then I became allergic to alcohol. Well, I was that way with tangerines. Now, I love tangerines. It's my favorite favorite fruit, especially this time of the year. They're so good, you know, to get tangerines. But I can't eat tangerines because I abuse tangerines. I'm a tangerine abuser. <laughs> now, I didn't know that about me, but see, they're little. And so I would tell myself, you can eat three to be the size of an orange. And so I would eat three. Well, I bought um, four dozen one weekend. And, and uh, by Sunday night, I was griping to J.D. about where were the tangerines. And he said, look in the trash. He said, there's a bunch of peelings and seeds in the trash. And I said, so? He said, well, you've eaten them. I said, four dozen tangerines? I don't think so. But he hadn't had one. And I'm going, my God, I can't believe it. Well, the next morning when I woke up, I couldn't wake up. My eyes would not open. I looked like the fly. <laughs> my face was so swollen. And I had an allergy from, I overdosed on the acid in the tangerines. And as a result now, I can't eat tangerines. Because if I, I, there's no way to eat just one. <laughs> and, you know, if I could eat just one, it might be all right. But I'd have to have that two or three because, see, they're small. <laughs> it's just like cigarettes. You know, the same thing. I, You know, I smoked for years. And then, you know, and the, today I'll think, boy, wouldn't a cigarette taste good after a meal? Yeah. But there's no way I can do that because I can't just do one of anything. See, I've learned that about me because I have an abnormal reaction to things and I am obsessed. And once you abuse something, you create a condition or an abnormal reaction to it. Now, part of that insanity, like I say, is doing the same things over and over and expecting different results. And this is what I did with people. I went to person to person to person just wanting to be loved. I wanted to be accepted for who I was and didn't have a clue who I was because you know, we're always afraid that if somebody really knows us, they won't like us. How do we know? We never tell them who we are because we know us and we don't like us. And therefore, we don't want to be honest about that to somebody else. And when Bill was sharing in the book about his feelings of loneliness and the need for excitement, a need for importance, and his self-deception and pride and his need to control his environment, would I not relate to that? You know, I related. And then the progression of his disease, the fears, the remorse, the hopelessness, and the emotional hangovers, what I had, again and again, looking in the mirror in the mornings and hating what I saw. You know, looking in the mirror and thinking, my God, what have I become? You know, that kind of thing. I had a lot of identity crisis this year. I would look in the mirror and I would see me like I saw me all these years, not how I was. And I would go to the store, and, and of course, every week or two, I'm having to buy new clothes. Because <laughs> as I'm losing a tremendous amount of weight, you know, you lose 100 pounds in, in eight months, and, and it really makes a difference, you know. Everything changes. Even your glasses change. And you say, how do your glasses change? Well, your cheeks go away, and your bifocals are in the wrong spot. And you have to read like this, you know. <laughs> It's the honest to God truth. You don't think about things like that. But when I would go to the store, I would go back to the place I have always gone. I'd go back to the women's department. 
and I'd go in there and I'd look and I'd try on things and I couldn't find anything. And I would be real depressed and then finally it was pointed out to me, there's other departments. <laughs> oh, well you see, I'd always told myself, you won't, you can't fit in those departments, there's no need to go there. See those old ideas, it's hard to break those old ideas, you know. And uh, the will is amazingly strong when it comes to managing, controlling and denial. That's where we seem to use our will the most and that's where it's the least effective. But I can't think of anything that describes an Al-Anon more than what I've just told you. And yet that's the definition, you know, that they have in there for an alcoholic. But I saw lots of hope in Bill's story as well. Especially when he said there was scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome by some one of us. You know, that's just like, I'm not the only person in the world that's had a heart condition. I'm not the only person. And believe it or not, I even found on the internet there's a lot of people who have this anoxic brain damage like my sister has. And I have been able to communicate with these people to get a little handle on how to deal with my feelings, you know. Because life continues to happen, you know. I thought that for a long time that when you came in and you worked a program you got bulletproof. And that life wouldn't happen. And if you did good things and if you tried really hard and if you, you, if you loved God and all like that, the bad things wouldn't happen to you. And I found that's not necessarily the case. Because bad things happen to good people, just like good things happen to bad people. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but I'm also glad because, you know, everything that happened to me in my life before I got here wasn't bad. I had some good things that happened to me along the way, too. But life still happens. You know, it's like, like say, we'd only been in the program a year and J.D. got cancer. And then his mom died. I had went through an ordeal with my mother for years, an ongoing thing with my mother. And then my sister had heart disease in 1995 and her diabetes was a problem. And then all of a sudden, look what happened to her a year ago yesterday. Who would have known? You know, I'd sent my, my uh, Christmas letter out on the Monday after Thanksgiving. And the very next day, my whole world changed. The whole world as I knew it. The only thing that didn't change was Al-Anon and the program. That was the only thing, and my God. Those were the only things. And thank God I had something that didn't change. I can't tell you how terrifying it is when everything changes. And then as the year progressed, it was the year of loss because I lost my two dogs, my two babies, one 16, one 16 and a half. These were my kids. This has been extremely difficult, extremely difficult. And it's been very difficult watching J.D. grieve and go through that grief. And I grieved over losing me. It's like, will I still be me? You know? I look in the mirror and go, God, you're old. You know? And it's like, well, yeah, the lines and the wrinkles and everything's showing out. I remember Connie Stevens said one time, the secret of not getting old is stay plump. <laughs> you know? 